Hey everyone, Michael Gormley here, your least favorite Catching Foxes co-host. I know it has been four weeks or five weeks since you've heard Luke's voice. We did that wonderful episode with Christopher West and Father Gregory Pine. Then I went and uh, I had to move houses in the middle of Easter season while I worked for a parish. So that was fun, trying to do all my parish work and uh, clean my current house while moving into a new house just insane. I don't know what is my problem. I'm a glutton for punishment. So anywho, this is actually going to be a two-parter. In part one, we talk about hell. Then in the second half, we talk about liturgy and the state of the church today in the liturgy with regards to Vatican II and the and the liturgy and liturgical reforms and the reform of the reform and the reform of the renewal of the reform and all the different things that happen there. So it's a two-parter. Um, so I'm going to take this opportunity before I introduce Dr. Larry Chap to let you know something relationships take work a lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about we'll go out of our way to treat other people well but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment and i have now three people who are very close to me who use betterhelp.com slash foxes to get that sweet sweet discount who use BetterHelp on an ongoing basis and it really really works we need to make sure that we too are mentally physically and emotionally healthy this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself and Yahweh. The good thing is they have Christian counselors. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, which... I really don't want to. <laughs> it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Catching Foxes listeners get 10% off their first month, which is huge, at betterhelp.com slash Foxes. That's B E T T E R H E L P dot com slash foxes. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and thousands of episodes of Catching Foxes. And now my guest today, Dr. Larry Chap. Dr. Larry Chap is a retired professor of theology. He taught for 20 years at DeSales University near Allentown, Pennsylvania. In 2013, he and his wife opened the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm in Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania. Dr. Chap received his doctorate from Fordham University in 1994 with a specialization in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. We're very lucky to record this episode with him. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, good, because hell is not my main area of interest, actually. <laughs> so, See, I hope to avoid it. <laughs> Academically, professionally, uh, and personally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about your manifesto of the new traditionalism. I find, a f- I find it funny because your story was, you know, you went in to be Mr. Heresy Hunter, you know, you were, you were talking about this in one of your other podcasts that uh, I heard you interviewed on when you did um, a walk through Love Alone is Credible. And you talked about this desire to be a heresy hunter, mostly apologetics. You're going to snuff out all the liberal thinking in the church and all this. <laughs> um, 
And then, and then you change. Because I was very much the same way. In fact, uh, Father Michael Scanlon, um, he filled in a class for us on ecumenism one day, a grad class I was taking at Franciscan. And he said, um, you know, we lost a world-renowned theologian who was going to teach here because he said, your freshmen in theology have called me a heretic one too many times. Uh, and I'm and I'm done. Uh, I couldn't possibly teach here, and so he said, you know, I always remind our Franciscan students that that God is bigger than any one branch of theology or approach to philosophy, and um, and and it saddens me today because I look at the church in such chaos. Yeah. I find, I, I was saying this at, a, at an event I was speaking at on Tuesday night, Prince of Peace in Plano, they're rebuilding a new church, and their old church was this ugly modernist monstrosity, uh, wicker chairs in the round, ugly altar, you didn't know where the front, where the back was, any of this stuff, and they're going to build a normal looking church, and some people are upset, some people are excited. All the young people are excited. All of the young people, without exception, are excited. The older people are a little upset, especially those who contributed to building the original church. So I was brought in and just to talk about it. And in, uh, in it, I said, I, I am so shocked as a church that we are so self-hating of our own tradition. And I don't mean it in an ideological way, but the church, is. we believe in sacred tradition. And it's not just theology. It's especially how we worship and our, you know, the, how we pray. Those are special parts of our sacred tradition. And, uh, you know, I go to a Novus Ordo parish. I also, uh, from time to time, will go to an ordinariate parish. That's what we do. Right. And I find when I go to the ordinariate parish, you know what people don't complain about? Father, your homily took too long. Father, mass went too long. Right. Oh, Father, I don't know. I don't understand these songs. I don't want to sing these hymns. These aren't fun. No one says that at all at the ordinary parish. You go there, and it's a two-hour-long ordinary Sunday mass for me. Yeah, ours is about an hour and hour and a half, hour and thirty-five minutes every Sunday. It depends on who's preaching, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> our our uh, the pastor of the church, the parish administrator, Father Fletcher, when he gives. A homily. It's roughly a 40-minute homily, and it is deeply catechetical, liturgical, you know, moral forming. Like, he gives really good homilies. They're not inspirational, like, I'm going to go set the, you know, my heart's been set on fire. But they're deeply instructive, and they weave together the gospel. They weave together liturgy in general, as well as our moral life and all that stuff. Where is where is this parish? Where is this parish? This is the Church of the Presentation in um, uh, north in the Houston area, uh, the Woodlands uh, Magnolia. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Our Lady oh, of Walsingham okay. is about 20, 35 minutes away from where I am right now. Yeah. I've been there. I've been to yeah. Our Lady of Walsingham. Yeah. It's beautiful. Small, but beautiful. Yeah. Right. Right. And so this ordinary parish, like, you know, the incense, the smells, the bells, all this stuff. And then when I come to my parish where I work full time, where I am absolutely a member of, I'm, I'm a part of a bunch of different stuff. The level of complaints, the moment anything remotely traditional happens, it's, it's vitriolic. Yeah. And then you see how different age of clergy actively despise and suppress younger clergy who are more traditional. And I don't mean unhinged jerks who are rad trads. I don't mean that category. I mean people who love what the general instruction of the Roman Missal says to do. 
Oh, I yeah. And they lose their yeah. There's but it's 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 a level of like I can understand not liking something. And I have plenty of people who don't like this or don't like that. I mean, I don't like classical music, but that doesn't mean I hate everyone who you know like. So that there's this level of vitriol that's just as equal in beige Catholicism that I'm finding in the Radtrad movement. I at least understand a lot of the Radtrad anger because it's like the Novus Ordo doesn't even say you're allowed to do this. And everyone is doing You know what I mean? Like, so there's this yeah, yeah. anger at all sides. So, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens. <laughs> okay. Can we, I, I just, I know we have, I know we've got it. We, ha, we ha, yeah. have some copy. My gosh, I am obsessed with Athletic Greens. I am absolutely obsessed with our next partner who has a product that I literally use every day. I started taking um, Athletic Greens because the pitch sounded very cool. This year, I wanted to just embrace embrace health again. You know, uh, that's just my big thing. And I, so it's one of the main reasons why I did Athletic Greens. And we and we uh, were able to meet with them and hear uh, a little bit of like what they're about, a couple other podcasts that are on par. They sent us these starter packs, yeah. which are awesome. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This is what I do. I come downstairs. I open the kennel for my dog. Dog comes out. I go right over, fill up. My glass of water, 12 ounces, cold water, dump one scoop of Athletic Greens in there, and it supplements for the whole day. It's awesome because the stuff they use is sourced from whole food ingredients, made in New Zealand. It tastes good. It's a powder that you dump in your drink. You can take it on the go. All of my health care regimens have fallen to the wayside, except for Athletic Greens. That should tell you something. <laughs> I was a bit skeptical at first just because I was like, am I going to be peeing very expensive pee? Like, that's what I'm, I'm wondering. So tons of people t- take some some like type of a multi a multi vitamin, but it's important to choose one with high quality in, in greens that your body's going to like actually absorb. I could feel that happen like immediately afterwards, and I've been I'm sleeping a little bit better. Everyone, I'm begging you to buy it so they will keep giving it to us. <laughs> I don't even know what we're going to. And, I mean, like like honestly, God, I'm not kidding. Um, we're gonna like both Aaron and I are gonna keep doing this after the problem with these sponsors we start getting them because we're doing an ad and then i end up spending all the ad money on buying more products so So here's a great thing this stuff is lifestyle uh friendly whether you eat paleo uh keto vegan dairy free gluten free Mm -hmm. it's fine it's got less than one gram of sugar uh no gmos which is very important for me and my family no nasty chemicals or artificial anything it's really good stuff so uh this is what we're going to say to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase i have the travel packs i will be using the travel packs you don't have to refrigerate the travel packs all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash foxes again that's athleticgreens.com slash foxes move over joe rogan to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance thank you to athletic greens for sponsoring this episode of catching foxes and my body so good it's so good there is, uh, well, it's one of the, I mean, I'm a cradle Catholic, and I attend an ordinary at parish in Scranton, Pennsylvania. My pastor is married. He has 10 kids, the priest there. Uh, <clears throat> it's beautiful liturgy because I got sick and tired of Novus Ordo liturgies. Yeah. And, I mean, I'll make no bones about the fact. I don't think we should all go back to the traditional Latin mass. I think mass should be in the vernacular. In fact, I think the ordinary at liturgy is a liturgy that the council fathers probably would have approved of the most. Mass in the vernacular, but still very traditional with elevated language, incense, bells, smells, chant, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
but you try to instill that in your average Novus Ordo parish, and it's just going to fall flat, and you're going to meet resistance. Uh, I, I really am. I, I used to think that I could explain the psychology of why so many priests are so vitriolic, and some lay people too, against any move towards a more traditional liturgy. I don't get it. Uh, I don't understand unless they're fearful of something, because usually that kind of hatred is born of some sort of insecurity or fear. Maybe they're fearful that you'll be successful. Maybe you're fearful that the traditional Mass will actually be more popular than the regular Novus Ordo Mass, and I think oftentimes it is. Um, So my advice to people, I often say this to people, and it gets me in hot water, is, you know what, parish shop, uh, this is your soul which is at stake. (laughs) And if you, you know, if if the church... If the church wants you to stay in your territorial parish, parish, then the church can do a better job of making sure that my territorial parish isn't insane or so boring that my kids are going to be lost to the faith because it's just a sacrament factory, in and out, see you next week, bye, that kind of thing. And if Mass goes longer than 45 minutes, there's going to be hell to pay. That kind of a parish, I'm supposed to stick with that? I'm sorry, I'm not going to. I'm going to shop around until I find a parish near me that is far more conducive uh, to the faith life of of myself and my children. And that's why my wife and I went to this. The ordinary parish is 50 minutes away from our home, and we drive there every Sunday. My wife is also now running their homeschooling cooperative. Uh, That's how much we're into this parish. Show me another parish in the Novus Ordo land of my diocese that has a homeschooling cooperative. Uh, you won't find one. Mm. The ordinary parish does. All right, and that's not my my diocese of Scranton isn't anything evil. It's 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 a typical diocese, and there are some decent parishes and some a lot of good priests. But there's a culture there, some kind of culture that holds everything. But you know what I mean, Michael? I just yep. there's something in the ether, something in the air. It's like you're walking through Jello or quicksand or something. You just can't seem to make any headway. That I, I think it 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 could be uh, demonic, actually, and I hate to sound. Uh, you know, melodramatic, ooh, it's demons. But there is something really, uh, you know, it's malodorous. There's a malodorous, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. I had a, um, we got Christopher West on the show maybe three or four weeks ago, and we were talking about, you know, sacred art and the body and body, body, body. And uh, I was telling (laughs) him how (laughs) a traditional... Uh, a traditional group, I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was the ordinary. I think it might have been the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. But they um, they were talking about taking over a retreat house that used to be run by, uh, I think it was the Franciscans. And they knew that there was some beautiful religious artwork in the building. And so they thought it was in the, whatever you call the cafeteria or refectory or whatever. and The refectory, yeah. Yeah. So they go and they, they knew it was drywalled over. but So they're like, oh, we'll pop the drywall, see if we can afford the restoration. And they took the drywall off and they found this beautiful, what do you call it, a relief where it's like a two-dimensional but has some three-dimensional qualities to it. And Yeah. And so they pop it and they said it was gorgeous except for one thing. The faces of all the angels and saints before it was drywalled over was smashed with a hammer. So these oh were my the f- God! They did this to their own thing, and then you know, uh, every so often I go on the new liturgical movement website, and uh, they were talking about you know they're trying to secure some uh, 
pre-55 liturgy reforms uh, missiles from France. And when and the order was selling this Dominican order, I think was selling the books because they had them in their in their library and they were selling them and uh, and then they found out that a traditional group was doing it, so they burned them all. And you're just like, like even oh, for man. historical purposes, I mean, what is going on in our church today where we're terrified of our own liturgy? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not an enemy of Pope Francis. I don't oppose Pope Francis. I'm not a Pope Francis fanboy. I don't wake up in the morning and thank God Bergoglio's our Pope. No, I mean I was a huge John Paul and Benedict fanboy, but I don't oppose Pope Francis the way a lot of traditionalists do. I think he's got his good points. But I tell you what, I thought he was. I thought he made a wrong move with Traditionis Custodes. I think it was wrong to suppress. The, the traditional Latin mass, what, what could possibly, and that's sort of your example right there just proves this, what could possibly be wrong with simply allowing people to worship in a form of worship that had been in the Catholic Church for 1,500 years? What could be wrong with that? Um, uh, yeah, there were pockets of you know resistance to Vatican II and these Latin mass communities. Well, there's pockets of all kinds of dissent in Novus Ordo parishes where you know millions of Catholics don't agree with the church on all kinds homosexuality, contraception, abortion, divorce and remarriage, women priests, all that kind of they dissent for they don't believe in the real presence. Well how come we're not correcting that in our Novus Ordo? Oh but we're going to we're going to repress the Latin mass because there's a few bad apples in there. I, 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 I just I just don't see why I don't see why we can't have a more pluralistic environment here, a more tolerant environment. Given how fractured the church is, given how contentious these liturgical issues are, why couldn't at least a step in the right direction towards a solution be let's let people have a wide latitude of choices? All right. I really do think, I think the motivation behind it was, and there have been numerous articles about this, the older clergy is realizing that younger clergy tend towards a more traditional approach to even the, to the Novus Ordo, not just let's do everything Latin, but they're far more traditional. They are the JP2 and the Pope Benedict priests, and they're being run by a church of more Pope Francis type priests. Um, who they themselves would call themselves John the 23rd priest, but they have never read any John the 23rd. But um, so there's this, to me, it was like a rear guard action. Like, uh, we don't like any of this stuff. So we're going to, that that to me is like why Pope Francis says, well, if you can already celebrate it, that's fine. But now you have to get a request. If you're a seminarian, your bishop has to request from the Vatican permission to celebrate according to the old form. To me, it's like they're just trying their best to shut the door as opposed to doing any sort of reconciliation or working towards you. And it was American Catholic Reporter article um, or author who said, to me, this shows like Francis will dialogue with anyone except for traditional Catholics. Yeah, that's true. That broke that broke the author's heart. Like he's a left wing Catholic, and he was like, "This is despicable in in how like just sweeping and broad it was." And so I just feel like so unmoored by it all. I do too, and I, I think with regard to Pope Francis, we need to keep in mind that he's Argentinian, and he uh, grew up 
from what I've been reading, he grew up a fairly traditionalist kind of Catholic. Right. But we need to understand that in the cultural environment of Argentina, very conservative Catholicism, what we would call maybe traditionalist Catholicism, often aligned itself with very repressive forms of politics, dictatorial, military junta kinds of politics, right? And Pope Francis might associate, no matter how hard he tries not to, he might simply associate very conservative Catholicism with what he considers to be a really bestial form of politics. And he has no time. All of us have prejudices in our lives where we say, I'm not going to talk to those sons of, you know, uh, no way, not on my watch. And I think that's the way Pope Francis is towards tradition. I think he's more progressive. But, um, you know, why not have we've had a synod on the family. We had a synod on the Amazon. Now we're having a synod on synods, you know, a big meeting on meetings. Uh, Why why not have a synod on liturgy? Wouldn't that be a good idea <laughs> where we bring together, we bring, we bring Peter Kwasniewski, you know, across the ocean to Rome to give his spiel. You know who Peter is, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the great, he's the big Latin mass guy. Yeah. Um, and I, and I like Peter. He's, I often disagree with him, but he's, he's a smart fellow and he's a nice man. Uh, so, I mean, you know, so, and, and get the Cardinal Supiches and the Cardinal Burks in the cage match you know, <laughs> to the death. To the you know, Burke, yeah. Burke versus Supich. Yeah. <laughs> the World Wrestling Federation or the kickboxing or whatever. That's awesome. And maybe the, well, uh, you know, so anyway, I'm joking now, but you're right. You know, it's, there's, this is why Cardinal Supich, for example, not only, went beyond traditionalist custodes and sort of banning the traditional Latin mass almost entirely. But he also banned his priests from doing the Novus Ordo ad orientum and things like that. Yeah, but you can't, uh, I know a see, priest is, locally the, here. Yeah, this is the, the crazy. You're not allowed to ban it. Yeah. You can't do that as a bishop. Like the the Rome this is the part that kills me, and this is the existential frustration that I feel is to say that a priest celebrating the Novus Ordo is not permitted to celebrate it ad orientum, even though the general instruction of the Roman Missal presupposes the priest is celebrating ad orientum, which is why it says, and the priest turns to the people saying, you know, repeatedly throughout the general yeah. instruction. Yeah. There is still yeah, that assumption, exactly. you know, there's still the assumption. But then, um, so if a bishop tells you, if you're a priest and he says you are not allowed to do this, and you know he's wrong. You have the argument of people saying, yeah, but who are you to say that he's the bishop? And then you would you'd be in such turmoil over, am I to obey, to obey the universal church or to obey my local ordinary? Because now it seems like these goods are in conflict. <clears throat> Within my own soul, what is the priest to do in that in that circumstance? There, there's also the fact that even if he has the canonical right and the right, according to the rubrics, to say mass ad orientum and to just ignore his bishop, that the bishop, in this case, a very powerful cardinal, could make his life miserable in other ways. Oh, it's time you know, for you to go to to go to therapy. Yeah. You know, and I mean, oh yeah, yeah. Her. That 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 man that burned the gay flag at his parish. Um, he oh, he had to go in hiding. Yeah, and, and so that's yeah. the thing is like they have. If 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 uh, Pope Francis is scared of that level of dictatorial power, 
That's what he just unleashed, but it's coming from the left, right? Like, if you don't get in lockstep, even with something that you know to be wrong, I'm going to take away your priesthood, essentially, and make you go to a a re-education camp, (laughs) right? Like then, then they I'm going to FSSB. I'm going to make it my life's mission to destroy you. Yeah, yeah. And the bishops are like the bishops. Let me rephrase that because I hate it when people say that. There are clergy who don't mind doing that to someone in the name of Jesus Christ. They don't mind ruining someone's life. And this is where there's sympathy for someone like a Michael Voris. Or right? I remember him talking about. Um, I think he was originally based out of the Diocese of Scranton, and he left. Um, but one of the phrases that he said was, you know, I can identify three liberal groups that are attacking the church's teaching on all these moral areas. I'm not, and yet the hammer the hammer falls on me. And I feel like a lot of conservative groups feel that way, whether they're traditionalists or not, is like, it's not the uh, the Catholics who barely practice their faith or who are antithetical to the church's views. No one bats an eye at, but the people that get disciplinary action are the extreme Catholics. You know what I mean? And it's that disparagement. No, that's so true. Yeah, that disparagement that makes people want to punch a wall and start, you know, denouncing everyone. And this this actually predates even Pope Francis. I oh, mean, yeah, this totally, was something totally. that was going on even under the so-called repressive disciplinary papacies of John Paul and Benedict. You know, that's the, that's the caricature of John Paul and Benedict concocted by the left, both the Catholic left and the secular left. You know, Cardinal Ratzinger was the the Panzer Cardinal, you know, which is really insulting to a German to conjure up, you know, the sort of Nazi connotations, the Panzer Cardinal, and that John Paul was this uber conservative, repressive pope who didn't believe in Vatican II. Anybody that lived, I'm 63 years old. I was in the seminary 1978 to 1985. Anybody that lived during that period of time and was intimately involved with the church knows what a pile of hooey (laughs) that narrative is. Because these kinds of dissenting voices that you just articulated among the priesthood, the sisterhood, monasteries, lay people, you, episcopacy, it was everywhere, even under both of those pontificates. It was more the rule than the exception. And they got away with it. They never had their knuckles wrapped. They never they never got into any trouble. But God help you if you're a priest, even under those pontificates, and you try to install an altar rail in your church, all right, and and or to do mass out orientum, then your local bishop was gonna come down on you. And it didn't and it didn't matter what John Paul or Benedict thought. Guys, I am so freaking excited about this new sponsor for Catching on Foxes. I'm talking to you guys today about Executive Coach Solutions. They are a um, leadership consulting firm that brings creativity and strength-based training to the art of business management. ECS works with individuals to bring out their talents to enable them to be happier and more effective at work. I cannot emphasize that part enough. I had the chance to work with them back in 2018 and 2019. It was absolutely incredible. It made me so much better at my job. I have skill sets that I use to this day. 
when you invest in yourself, especially if you are like a priest or if you are at a parish, a lot of times as church workers, we always don't get that soft skill that we need in order to lead well. And this is what Executive Coach Solutions does. They provide you with those soft skills that you need to be a more effective leader. And I'm 100% happier at work than I was before I worked with them. I feel like I have the tools now to really talk with anyone that I work with about about like anything. I have the ability to set goals, set priorities, do things that, especially if you work in the church, people don't really provide you with any of the know-how on on how to do that. And they do such a great job of that. Any like even if you don't work for the church, this is actually primarily for people who work in a business setting, but it 100% applies to people who work at the church as well. This is really an opportunity for like anyone who listens to our podcast who wants to get better at their career. I encourage you 100%. You're going to get all the practical soft skills you wish you had you had learned when you work with them. So this is what I want you to do. Go to executivecoach.solution/foxes and schedule a phone call. Talk about where you want your career to take you. You're going to be better at your job. They're going to give you the tools in order to do that. I really encourage you just just to go to their site, schedule a call, talk about where you want your career to take you. That website, again, is foxes and schedule a phone call today to talk about where you want your career to take you. And, and the, yeah, that, that culture of reprisal towards priests kept them in line, and it's, it's kind of sad. Not kind of sad. It is sad. It's it's just it's actually um, it, it, it's really something nefarious. I and I have struggled for the for years. I mean, like I said, I began my seminary career as a little mini me Tokamada, and I just wanted to root out heresy everywhere because I was convinced that liberal Catholicism was the death of the Catholic faith and the biggest. But I have since come to think too that the great unwashed middle. Of, of the Catholic faith. It's neither hot nor cold, neither super liberal or super conservative. I think there are almost more to blame for a lot of this than anything, uh, because that's that's the inertia that sort of drags the, the whole thing down. That kind of beige Catholicism uh, that doesn't want any boats rocked from either the right or the left. Um, and so, I do have a, that's why I called my manifesto, you know, our manifesto is co-written by others, uh, a manifesto for a new traditionalism. Uh, I'm a traditionalist. I just have certain really deep reservations about the direction that some of my fellow traditionalists have gone, where they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and, and tossed people like Ratzinger, De Lubach, and Balthazar in, this, in with the real modernists, the real dissenters. And, and, and that we just need to go back to the scholastic manuals and stuff. I just think this is a bad move. Uh, but ultimately, I think the truth is on the side of some kind of traditionalism and, and not with the progressives. Yeah, and I see that's why it's an attack, you know, because it's, I don't know. Yeah. It, it just, it breaks my heart because I see it in terms of, you know, I have, I have consulted and worked with numerous chanceries and dioceses. I would have priests that would call me in tears Saying, you know, I can't fire any of these people because they'll sue us. And because, but the, none of them even go to church anymore. And they work and run the diocesan office of the new evangelization. You know, and I said, <laughs> right? He said, the, think the, about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, I call it the office of the no evangelization. And it, it's true. And I said, yeah. he said, how do I get out of this? And I said, lay, close the department, lay everyone off, and then in two years, reboot it. 
And he's like, I, I don't think my bishop would go for that. And, and the thing is, it is, you know, what, what's that Japanese saying? The tallest weed is the one that gets cut. Like, the ones that stick out the most are the ones who are going to just get absolutely destroyed. But they're the ones that, in, in many cases, not all cases, that are calling for these reforms, that are saying we got to go. Because here's the kind of the thing is, if we go back to the liturgy of Vatican II, I don't think, of, of, excuse me, let me rephrase this. If we go to what Sacrosanctum Concilium called for, I don't think we end up with this, with the Novus Ordo. I think we end up with the 67 right. missile that was yeah. translated yeah. into the vernacular. It wasn't completely in alignment with Sacrosanctum Concilium, but it had only been a couple of years, a few years. But then what happened even further was something so different in a lot of ways. Yeah. That noble simplicity yeah. became a bizarre um, shaving down of the church's tradition. Well, and many of the people that were on the liturgical committee that formed that, like the theologian Louis Bouillet, were absolutely disgusted by, by the end product and didn't agree with it. It's, it seems, I'm not an expert on this, but others are, and I trust them. They say that the process was kind of manipulated by a guy named Bugnini, yeah. you know, who uh, lied and manipulated his way and, and sort of manipulated Paul VI. And uh, he was pretty much the prime inventor of, of the Novus Ordo. I don't, and that he may have been a Freemason and all this. I, I don't know what stock to put in into all of that. And ultimately, it was Paul VI's decision. I mean, regardless of how the Novus Ordo came into existence, Paul VI could have given it two thumbs down and said, no, <laughs> this is not this is not a proper liturgy, but he didn't. He gave it two thumbs up and said, fine, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to go with this. And that's what made people like Louis Bouillet sick to his stomach. Like I cannot believe. So yeah, what would have been wrong with simply going with a 67 missile that had already undergone, you know, several revisions, but not some sort of radical surgery. I don't think we'd be having this conversation right now. All right, about liturgy, if, if they had gone down that road. Um, sad that they didn't. A buddy of mine runs the uh, liturgical ministries here. He's a coordinator of the ushers and the EMHCs and the, all of this stuff at, the, at our church, and we have a huge parish. And he's not liturgically trained formally, like he's not a liturgist, so he has had to learn this stuff um, as he goes, but he is an academic. He's getting his doctorate in to, uh, political philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. And so, super sharp guy, he goes to the ordinariate, and he was talking about all of this stuff, and he's like, you know, the, the thing that's so shocking is Pope Paul VI wrote a follow-up document, essentially, this might be too far, but like, abrading the church in the West of, you know, like, you don't even know any Latin hymns anymore, you know, and they, he included a yeah, handful yeah. of, uh, what was that, Jubilatsi Day or something like that, I can't remember the name of the document, but... Um, and he's like, the lady need to know all of this stuff in Latin. Like Gregorian chant still matters. Like you just abandoned the whole, the whole thing. You just chucked it. And that's Pope Paul the sixth saying that and begging that. And then my yeah, buddy pointed out, had... oh, sorry, you go. No, you go ahead. What'd your buddy point out? He pointed out that almost every liturgical document that has come out since has largely been corrective of abuses rather than. You know, a, you know, extolling this or that component of the liturgy, which post-Vatican II, it's, it's been so 
it's, it's been so hyper-focused on how the liturgy makes me feel, boots on the ground wise, that it doesn't matter what Rome says. I don't care about the documents. I don't care about the tradition behind it. it I don't like it. It's, it's dumb. It's boring. It's this. It's that. It's not in English. So get it out of here. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it, the whole thing was just a colossal mess. I think a lot of people don't understand, I think, or no, a lot of people may understand, but don't appreciate enough, is that in uh, 1968, of course, Pope Paul VI issued his famous encyclical letter, Humanae Vitae, on, he, where he reiterated the church's stance on artificial contraception, the, the, that it's immoral. And a lot of moral theologians had been saying for many, many, many years that the Pope was going to change this teaching. Yeah. And the Expectation had risen in Western cultures in particular that, I mean, it's just a fate of many Catholics had already started contracepting because their priests had told them, yeah. oh, don't worry about it because the Pope is about to change. You get the picture. So when Paul VI came out in Humanae Vitae and says, no, you can't do this, there was, as you know, massive, massive, massive dissent in the church, dissent like we haven't seen in a millennia, uh, whole Episcopal conferences in Europe and so in Canada, denouncing essentially Humanae Vitae and telling their people, ignore this. Bishops all over the world and priests all over the world and theologians all over the world saying, just ignore this. The Pope is wrong. This, I think, broke the spirit of Paul VI in 1968. I really, I think it broke his spirit. Uh, I think he understood at that point that he had lost some kind of authority forever. Notice he never wrote another encyclical. He was Pope for another 10 years. He never wrote another encyclical after Humanae Vitae. And I think that the liturgy that we got, the Novus Ordo, people say, why did Paul VI approve it when he clearly, like in the document that you referenced, that he clearly disapproved of certain things? I think it's because he felt powerless. He felt defeated. He was a broken man. Yeah. A bro we had a broken pope for 10 years. A broken pope. And I think that's why the 70s were so crazy. People realized that Rome was rudderless, uh, that we had a broken pope, that the church was now in a free fall, and we could do whatever the hell we wanted. And that's exactly what people then did, which is why the the cardinals elected Karol Wojtyla from Poland in 1978, for a lot of reasons. But mainly, we don't want a broken pope. We want a pope to come in and fix this. But by then, the, the horses were out of the barn at that point. And yeah. not even a John Paul or not even a Benedict can, you know, you can't, how do you herd cats at that point? The church is a billion and a half people, whatever, scattered all over the world. You know, you can't close that many barn doors. I don't care what pope you are. And, and the dynamic was set in place, and it might be generations before the church fixes herself. Yeah, and I think that that uh, I, I was in um, Dr. Alan Shrek's Vatican II class, which is a grad class that he teaches, and um, we were discussing why did the spirit of Vatican II hijack the council so quickly after it, and w what happened? And uh, my kind of one sentence answer was, you know, this is what happens when you have a council of reform in the middle of an age of rebellion. That people just yeah. take the slightest emphasis, the the slightest self-critical nature becomes the clarion call to burn it all to the ground, and it's like you know Hans Urs von Balthasar wanted to raise the bastions to to change the church from fortress church to you know pilgrim church, missionary church, 
Yeah. And, uh, and it the was church like, was a fortress. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was like, there's so many, so many things you can point to to say that. But then at the same time, instead of the church being a missionary, the church was then to be colonized by the world. And there were people who championed the church being colonized by the world. And I, I just keep seeing this over and over again. Priests who hate hearing confession. Like, I don't understand. Yeah, I know. I don't. It, it, hurt, it literally makes me cry when I have to talk to someone who is trying to come back to a practice of the faith. And a priest be like, uh, no, I don't have time for that. Meanwhile, other priests stay till in the confessional till midnight, making sure everyone is heard. Yeah. Yeah. And my, and my ordinary parish, our priest hears confessions before Mass, after Mass. It's just incredible. And, uh, yeah, I don't understand a priest that doesn't want to hear confessions either. Get out of the priesthood then. Get out of the priesthood. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out either, buddy, because you're not, you're not wanted here. Uh, that is just, a, it's just unconscionable. But to go back to the question, why did Vatican II fail? In some sense, it, it if you want to use the metrics of the post-conciliar church as a measuring rod for, you know, whether or not the, and then it failed. I mean, I, I, I'm a big defender of Vatican II in other ways, but it failed pastorally. And the question is why? Well, I think the rot was deep before the council. Yeah. Uh, the fact is the only reason why the church collapses culturally, theologically, almost overnight after the council lists lit off the ecclesiastical libido uh, is because the church was rotting already before the council. I mean, Ratzinger noticed this in 1958 when as a young priest, he published his first major article in the influential German journal, Hochland, Hochland. And it was the title of the, the article was the pagan, the new paganism and the church. And he was essentially saying, yeah, the church is pretty much pagan. It's pretty much a pagan church and, you know, a, a church of pagans. And you go back and see all kinds of theologians and philosophers and Catholic literary figures and intellectuals from 1900 on saying, whoa, the church is really in a bad way. Church is in a bad way. So we need, I think, to avoid one. This is one of my disagreements with the hard traditionalists where they sort of say the, the fault is Vatican II. Vatican II may have been a catalyst but it was igniting combustibles that were already there, and some other thing would have combusted them, I think. Even if there had never been a Vatican II, the cultural tsunami of the 1960s, I think, would have created a, a lot of similar problems for the church. Yeah, and you could say that it's also the, you know, you have the collapse after World War I of the last kind of ancient regimes of Europe. Yeah. And you have now in the 60s the children of an entire generation of nothing but liberal democracy, secular governments. And you have this further distancing from it, and they don't even care. I, I remember in my Vatican II class they were talking about what led up to J, uh, Pope John the Twenty Third calling for the Second Vatican Council. And one of it was, and I don't know if you're familiar with this or, or where I heard this from, but... Um, it was essentially a survey was done in the 50s in France or maybe late 40s about the attitudes of Catholics towards their faith. And it was something like less than 10% of the French went to mass who called themselves Catholic on any given Sunday. Yeah. And they realized that here the eldest daughter of the church gone through multiple French revolutions, you know, anti-clericalism, burning priests and nuns and guillotining and all this stuff, all of a sudden found itself, except for like the Vendée region of France, 
as even though they were baptized, they were not Catholic. And to have this happen to the eldest daughter of the church was too much for like, so that's part of the rot. Like France didn't abandon Catholicism because it went from Latin to the vernacular. They abandoned Catholicism because France went secular well before Vatican II. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the, culture, the cultural influences were far more determinative of what direction the church was going to go in than, than the form of the liturgy. Now, you know, gutting the liturgy didn't help matters any yeah. by any stretch. But the process of calcification, as you call it, had already set in. I mean, there were, geez, just go back and do a historical study of the intellectual sort of legacy of Catholicism during that period, and you will see numerous, numerous from Guardini to Carl to 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 literary figures like like Bernanos and Moriac and Peggy, all saying they're they're ringing the fire alarm bell, saying we are in deep deep trouble. Yeah, because they saw the secularism of culture seeping into the church. So now that's why I say Vatican II did have a certain naivete, I think, mm-hmm. in not I think. I think Vatican II said a lot of really wonderful, great things. It was a great council, in my opinion, theologically. But it's ironic that a council that uh, championed itself as a pastoral council, seeking to speak in a language that modern people would find more amenable, that this council would be so pastorally tone deaf. <laughs> I, I'm, a big, I'm a big champion of Vatican II's theology, a resource mont communio theology, a yeah. Christocentric, Christocentric Gaudium et Spes 22, only in the mystery, only in the light of Christ does the mystery of man make sense. That's the Vatican II I love. But the Vatican II that's kind of reaching out to the world at a time when the world's falling apart. Um, and, and so anyway, um, that's, yeah. yeah. Hey everyone, Gomer here, and I want to take a moment to talk to you about a new sponsor to the show, Petrus Development Conference. This conference being held at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida, will have over 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries small and large. Their primary audience is campus ministries, Catholic high schools, Catholic grade schools, Catholic dioceses, and yes, Catholic apostolates. They want you to invest in yourself and your career as well as your ministry's future. So come and build community with other Catholic fundraisers in a beautiful beach resort location. If you register in March, check this out. You'll be eligible to win a free three-hour consulting package with a Petrus coach. If you register in April, the first 10 people will receive a $40 airport shuttle voucher. Oh, yeah. Fundraising is hard, so let the fine folks at the Petrus Development Conference give you the tools and the community to make it less hard and actually enjoyable and fulfilling. Take a walk on the sunny side of fundraising at the beach in Naples. And listen, I've done tons of these Catholic conferences, and I'm telling you, the ones at a resort on a beach is where you want to be. The Petrus Development Conference 2022 takes place on June 13th to the 15th. And if you sign up today and use the coupon code FOXES, you'll get 50 bucks off your registration. How awesome is that? So click the link in the show notes or head on over to PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Special thanks to Petrus Development for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. Well, I, you know, uh, I, have, I have one thing that I think we can flesh out. And then we can we can wrap it up, and you can go do all the 
all the wonderful things you do at the at the farm there. Um, okay. So uh, Bishop Barron. So I want to. This is my like. I'm a big fan of Bishop Barron. Word on fire. All that stuff. Um, in his book on the Eucharist and in his DVDs on the Eucharist, he has this story that he draws um, a lot from from uh, when he talks about the Eucharist, where he was in Rome and he was celebrating as a priest. Um, and he was distributing Holy Communion, and all these Italians came up and just kind of like shoved their hands in his face and was like, Papa, you see Papa, like basically, at, or Padre, not Papa, um, asking for the Eucharist. And he talks about how it was such a powerful moment for him, for he learned at that moment the, the deep hunger that only the Eucharist can solve. And I'm pretty sure that's the opening story he tells in the on the Eucharist in his book on the Eucharist. So I'm thinking about this, and then I recently read the International Theological Commission's document on the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. Have you read that document? No, I have not, actually. I, I loved it. It, was, it came out in 2021 in January, and I loved it because I feel like one of the big things that we have today, especially in American Catholicism, is a disconnect between my personal faith in Jesus Christ and my the sacramental life of the church and how there is this disconnect and, you know, whatever. We could go off in a million different things with that. But one of it was that modern, the modern mind has no room in his heart for symbols and they're, they're neither right. cognitive nor performative. And if they are to the modern mind cognitive, they just tell simple truths like an American flag about, you know, these stars and bars, what they represent. But they don't actually communicate true knowledge. And then the performative side, they don't actually lead to real action. And the postmodernists took that side and broke it away from the cognitive and said the real action is emotional impact. Like it's all about the emotion. And you can see how both of those play themselves out in the liturgy. But this is what I said. Someone asked me, how do you put this into practice in light of the church today? And I said, communion plates. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, okay, if we're talking about the restoration of, of symbols and symbolic action, if I say to you, this is the body of Christ, right? The USCCB is about to spend $22 million re-educating the Catholic faithful on the Eucharist, right? This whole thing going on. Right, and, right, right. And I said, they, they should use it $22 million to buy communion plates for every parish because the general instruction of the Roman Missal says you have to have them, but whatever. Um, but the idea of, oh, you believe this is really Jesus? Yes, this is how much I believe. Not one crumb should fall to the ground. And if a crumb breaks away, it lands on a plate of gold. Like, think about what that says about what we believe, let alone kneeling while receiving communion and altar rails, which I think are all wonderful. But just the plate, just the patent, just this training altar servers to go from under the ciborium to underneath the, the, the one receiving Holy Communion. Uh, the, um, the ordinary priest shared with me, he said, you know, we do intinction. So we dip the host directly into the uh, precious blood and then I move it over, almost right to your face and then from the tip of the chalice into your mouth and you receive right on the tongue. It's like three inches at most and there's a communion patent. He said, you would be shocked at how many crumbs are on a patent. 
even in that scenario, how much more so? I agree. I, you know, our ordinary parish does the same thing. It's uh, communion via intinction while kneeling at an altar rail on the tongue uh, with a patent, gold patent underneath. And, and I also am an adult server in the parish. Nice. In fact, I'm a master of ceremonies. And I agree with you 100%. It is amazing how many Eucharistic particles are on those patents when you go back up to the altar to cleanse and purify them. The idea that, oh, that's just overkill is nonsense. And to not, therefore, have them, you're right. It communicates symbolically, we don't really care. We don't really care. And, just, you know. uh, and also, what does a priest do in a regular parish, too, when a host falls on the ground accidentally? Hmm. That also is yeah. powerful symbolism. I've, I've seen priests uh, literally throw them away. Well, I think I lost you. Increase in reverend, twenty-two million. The bishops are going to spend. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm cynical when it yeah. comes to the bishops. Mm-hmm. I'm very cynical when it comes to the bishops. I don't think anything good usually comes from the USCCB. And twenty-two million dollars means I guarantee you nothing's good is going to come from the USCCB. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, personnel is policy. Man muss gute Leute haben. I don't know. I don't know. It's a mess. There was, um, with, with the mask mandate, we have dropped about 22 hosts on the floor in the year or the year and a half when the masks were required, which is more than all the previous 20 years of our church, you know, combined, 25 years. Um, and uh, we had a visiting priest who, when the host was dropped, he stopped everything, consumed it, Kept his line stopped, went and got um, the uh, the um, the water corporal. from the cruet, got the corporal, and he purified the whole area on his hands and knees in his vestments. The music was done at that point because it was near the end of the line. The whole place was silent watching this happen. A woman came up to me immediately after Mass in tears, and she said... I have been a Catholic my whole life, and I have always believed in the doctrine of the real presence. And I have never believed it more than when I watched a priest, you know, basically clean. Right. I wasn't sanitized, but, you know, purify the area where the host fell. She said, I was in tears the whole time. And then the very next week, the host fell, and the deacon went over, and he picked it up, and he immediately consumed it. And then he stood right in that spot and distributed Holy Communion. And that person was there at that mass, and she said, I don't know if that guy believes in the real presence. Yeah. And I remember hearing that, like, no, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but symbols go a long way. It's, it's nothing deliberate, but it's the product, once again, of a culture and a cultural mindset that's like swimming through jello. And, um, yeah. I don't know. Well, hey, well, thank you so much for spending uh, almost two hours with me. Uh, honestly, I can listen to you talk uh, <laughs> forever. I think. Well, uh, oh, thank you. I, I, you know, you're one of. My, I've done a lot of these podcasts uh, over the past couple of years since I started my blog, uh, GaddyMissBest22.com, uh, and. Uh, this is one of my favorites. You're you're a great interlocutor, great conference. I could talk to you forever. Nice, nice. Well, if you ever want to come back, please, please do. Just shoot me an email and say, "Hey, let's uh, talk about heaven instead." Let's of talk hell about this. Time. Yeah. Oh, don't 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 ask something you can't promise because I, I I probably will. 
Well, let me tell you, my buddy is going to be gone for two months. So if and I don't have, I only have two other people lined up. So if you want to come on in a, in a month or heck, I will do it literally anytime. Okay, I will. I promise, I will. Thank you. 